welcome to episode nine of Adventures in Advising with me, Colm Cronin. And hey, greetings and salutations. This is Matt Markin. Matt, episode nine. It is the past the the midpoint of April. And how are things with you there in California? Ah, think think things are going. Um. At least, I guess, some of the new things I guess I could talk about would be a few of the state governors are creating these joint guidelines of when and how to possibly reopen the state with the business and daily life. So, for example, our California governor, Gavin Newsom, he unveiled a like a six point plan uh, with conditions and the conditions have to be met before any modifications are made to the state's uh, stay at home order. So, um with his plan, if you know, he's worked on it, I guess, with leaders from Oregon and Washington as part of like this regional pact to coordinate like loosening of these social distancing restrictions. But aside from that, I guess the big thing would be last week, I think the Treasury Secretary reported that 80 million Americans should have already received their stimulus checks. So it's part of this economic uh, impact payment. So not sure how much you've heard about this, but it's uh, part of this like $2.2 trillion stimulus package intended to help Americans in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so hopefully that can help out a little bit, if any, um, uh, for many Americans. But it's still like a day-to-day thing. I mean, some stay-at-home orders for some states are set to end in uh, April 30th or sooner, while other states have extended their stays, uh, their stay-at-home orders. So like for California, I don't even think we have a certain date. It's just we'll find out when, uh, hopefully, when things uh, slow down with the virus and we can continue to flatten the curve. But how are things over with you? Um, I guess there have been a lot of developments since we last spoke. Ireland extended the restrictions until uh, Star Wars Day, actually. So May 4th, mm-hmm. the current restrictions are due to end, but we don't know if that will be the end of them or if they will be extended out further. And the big news really in terms of education is that our big state exam. So we have a junior certificate and a le- and what's known as the leaving certificate. And the junior certificate is after the first three years of secondary school. That has been cancelled completely this year. And the leaving cert, which is the big end of high school, end of secondary school examination has been postponed. And the exact date has yet to be fixed, but they are looking at August. Now, that will have a knock-on impact in terms of undergraduates coming into the university system. Ordinarily, they start in September. That's just not going to be possible this year. So there is a task force working on that right now. We probably won't have clarity until the exact date of the Leaving Cert is known and at that point then they can begin to assess when students so certainly we're looking at a delayed start for undergrads and that will obviously have knock-on implications throughout the the universities and my own institution at Dublin City University um, DCU has gone with uh, what an on-time online initiative for international students. So for first semester, 
uh, uh, for postgrad students that will be done online and then with the view to those students coming onto campus in second semester and doing their dissertation in the summer so finishing in uh, September 2021 so you know that we have one year master's programs in Ireland so they, they would they would still finish in the the prescribed time and that is due to be rolled out. DCU has um, made that decision, and I think other universities are looking to see what what they're going to to do. Uh, so certainly a, a lot of changes on this side of the Atlantic, but I think uh, still still some uncertainty. I think DCU made the decision to try and offer some certainty to the international cohort, so that at least they could begin to make plans. But uh, I think. For our undergrad students, certainly a lot of uncertainty. And I mean, there is understandably students have put an awful lot of effort into studying. The Leaving Cert is like a cultural phenomenon in Ireland. People talk about their Leaving Cert experiences. And for for that to be moved is obviously going to cause a huge amount of disruption. So I have a lot of empathy for those students and for the teachers who have put so much time and effort in. And now, you know, there will undoubtedly for for many students between the, the stress of what's going on and just the lack of routine, you, you wonder about the impact. But uh, on the on the positive side of things, we definitely have seen a reduction in the number of cases in, in Ireland. So we are beginning to, to see that flattening of the curve that's being talked about a lot. So that is certainly positive. So that, I suppose those are the, the big developments over here over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, like even in the States, I mean, just for even students that are graduating this semester, this quarter, I mean, a lot of institutions have canceled their commencements or postponed them. Like for San Bernardino, we're not sure yet because um, our quarter is supposed to end the second week of June. So right now they kind of have it on hold. Um, our commencement office sent an email out to students just saying, hey, we know you have questions and this is a very concerning time We're we're looking at all avenues. So um, there's been a lot of talk from that I've seen through like Facebook and through email uh, for other institutions um, where, you know, maybe it's something that's virtual or maybe it's a postponement until December and they might com- combine the fall and or spring and fall commencements together. So it, it's, it, yeah, everything's kind of up in the air. Like even for us, we're not sure how summer's going to work, if it's going to be online or not. I mean, a lot of students are asking us how summer's going to work, how fall's going to work. And, Right now, we're just kind of like hang tight. We're kind of taking this day by day. Um, our orientations for our incoming students, uh, for our transfers, that's going to be online. Uh, for freshmen or first-year students, probably will be online. Uh, that final decision hasn't been made yet. So it's just, yeah, so much uh, so much up in the air. But I think for the most part, like uh, really thankful for our students and our faculty and staff, like just how understanding all of them are with the situation as much as it, you know, might be a bummer for a lot of them in terms of commencement, because um, that's such a high point because you're you're graduating, you're finishing, um, you know, we're just kind of seeing w- what happens and, you know, we'll go from there. But in terms of work for me, like work wise, it's 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 been busy, you know, like last week, uh, this last week, I had like 46 student appointments through Zoom and like seven group meetings and three projects to get done. So like when you were uh, texting me about, hey, when should we record the episode? 
like I waited to text you back because I was like, I want to see how I feel energy wise after um, the end of this week. So like I was, I was drained and, and I know some of my colleagues are too. Yeah. I think that's a phenomenon that a lot of people. Yeah. Cause I think we were talking um, an episode two ago about like how I was feeling more tired doing zoom appointments than I was like in person. And it's like, it's no joke. Um, there was a time that I forgot like what day it was when I was talking to students. So there's like a week and a half ago and I was talking to students. She was uh, asking when census was. And so like I gave her the date and then I'm telling her like, Oh, census day is April 20th. So you still have about, and then I like blinked because I was trying to figure out like how many days it was until the 20th. And I couldn't remember what day of the week it was or what the date was. And so I had to look at my phone to see what the date was to, to tell her. So, but speaking of phones, um, have you heard of Jabber? Cisco Jabber? I have I have not. Tell me more about Jabber. So, and if you all know about this, I just found out about it. So, um, so it delivers like instant messaging, voice and video calls and, and voice messaging. So like my friend Kara, who works in our undergraduate studies office, like she texts me and she's like, hey, um, can I uh, test something now? I'm going to call you. So I just finished my, my appointment. Uh, so I was like, sure, no problem. And so so she calls, but it was showing her office line. So I was like, she's in the office? So she's like, no, no, no. Um, the university has like this license uh, that if he, you can use Jabber and you can call from your cell phone using the Jabber app and it'll show like your office line. Because before what we were doing, if we had to make any um, outgoing calls, like we would be using our cell phones and like I was using star 67 and typing in their phone number. So like it would show a blocked caller, which then it's kind of up to the student, like if they're going to answer the phone or not, if they see that they don't know who it is. So like, um, so I downloaded the Jabber app and and, and uh, put my request in with the university and then got approved for it. So now I can just call, dial the number through the Jabber app and it'll show my office line. So at least when I'm calling the student, it'll show um, like my CSUSB number. So probably a better chance of students answering it. I mean, most of my appointments are through Zoom. But like if a student doesn't join their Zoom appointment uh, within like five minutes, I'll call them. And so now I'll just use the Jabber app to call and just say, hey, um, are you going to join the Zoom meeting? Or if you're having technical issues, we can we can use uh, we can just do it over the phone. But instead of waiting for the student and marking them as like a no show, like I can you know use proactive outreach, call them. And then, um, yeah, using this Jabber app so far, I've been using it for like a couple of days and um, I think it's worked well. Yeah, no, I hadn't, hadn't heard anything about it. So thanks for sharing that. I think that might prove useful to some listeners. Definitely. It sounds like it might solve a lot of problems for some people. It's interesting, I suppose, um, the, the way in which certain aspects of technology have helped to, to fill maybe some of the, the gaps that have existed and um, I'm sure that that will continue to to be the case. I mean, we we earlier in the series, we spoke to Eric Stoller about chatbots. And I know that he has been working on that side of things as well during this and various other um, aspects. And I suppose we've all become so familiar with uh, Zoom and the NFL draft takes place next week. Mm -hmm. And that is going to be a virtual draft. So technology uh, and, it, uh, you know, let's let's see how that works, because I think that could be fa fascinating to to see what kind of issues uh, may, may uh, arise in, in relation to that. Oh, yeah, that is going to be interesting indeed. 
so much could could go right with it, but so much could go wrong at the same time. In, indeed, there is the there is the potential for for a, a lot of things to to go wrong. They say they have it all locked down. I guess we we shall we shall see. Um, I'm just imagining that, like when they when someone says like the name of the person who's getting drafted to whatever team, and then it goes to maybe the the camera of uh, the webcam of that particular player, and like the, you know their Wi-Fi connection goes out, and it's just like a still frame of them with this awkward expression on their face. That could be the case. I know that over here there were there was an effort to do darts uh, virtually so to have different darts players th- throw in their own house but one of the top darts players actually wasn't allowed to participate in the competition because his home wi-fi network wasn't strong enough and they were worried that that exact problem would happen that it would freeze and so it- <laughs> He was he wasn't allowed to to participate. So if that was like the the best dart player, the number one dart player in the world, I bet the, the other dart players are probably very happy with that situation. <laughs> They're like, I actually have a chance to win. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe 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 someone sabotaged it. That's who knows. You never know. You never know. <laughs> Um, well, we uh, have uh, our own episode to to go ahead with, and we have a, some really interesting interviews ahead. But before that, I think we have a couple of people to uh, give a shout out to. Isn't that right? There is. Um, so I think we had one from David Gray, right? We did indeed. And for those listeners who aren't familiar with David, David is now the... I think is is he is it uh, chairperson? Is that he? I, I'm not sure of his exact title, but I, I believe he he's the in the day to day running of UCAT, uh, which is one of Nakata's partner um, organizations and based in the UK. And I had been looking forward to getting along to their conference in April, but unfortunately that was one of the conferences that uh, had to be postponed. And so David, yeah, got in touch uh, to say that he had been listening to uh, the um, podcast and he wanted to just give us a, let us know that he thought we were doing a great job and that he had said that UCAT should have done a podcast but that he is happy that they uh, didn't decide to run at the end because he feels that uh, a lot of what they would have been doing, uh, we've been fortunately able to cover that. And he really enjoyed the interviews over the last few episodes and he told us to to keep it up. So that is what we are certainly endeavoring to do, David. Thumbs up. Thank you, David, so much for that. And we also have a shout out to... Their handle is um, I Can Steal That, all one word. Uh, so it's off of Apple Podcasts. And this person said, uh, Colin and Matt are wonderful. I'm not an advisor myself, but I really enjoy learning so much about this field and doing it in a really fun way. So with your handle, um, I hope you don't steal stuff um, or that you borrow 
advising knowledge from from the podcast and from you know the advising community but truly thank you thank you thank you so much for your comment it definitely means a lot absolutely um we we do not support plagiarism but we we do thank you for the, your <laughs> kind comment uh reviewer on apple podcasts and uh for for those of you who who are listening wherever you listen thanks for for listening and uh, maybe uh Hit hit that uh subscribe button. Um, we we ha- have uh, I think uh, some great episodes already lined up uh, in the coming weeks, and today's episode is absolutely no exception. We th- this episode uh, a lot of the interviews came about Matt from a trip you took, isn't that right? Yeah, so a lot of these interviews actually are from December. So I used to work in, a, in the admissions office, and I would never take vacation because. It was always busy and I never like I was never assigned like a backup person in case I was out. So if I was gone, like out sick or on vacation for a couple of days, like my work would just pile up. So like I, I learned never take vacation. And so I told myself, like once I left admissions, like I would make sure that I had more self-care. But it got to a point where I had so many vacation hours that I was exceeded. So I have to use up these vacation hours or else I lose it by the end of the school year. So I had like it was like November and I had like 14 days left and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. So um, usually my, my boss, like I'll ask, like, can I just take like every Friday off in November, December and use up my vacation hours? And usually he's cool with that. But for some reason, this, this last year, he was like, no, he's like, I would really prefer you to take like a week off. He's like, I really want you to just try to enjoy like your yourself and your vacation. So I was like, uh, but I have no plans to go anywhere. I'll just be at home. And then um, I was chatting with Craig McGill and and I was telling him my, my little dilemma. And he was like, said, oh, well, you know, you can always visit South Dakota. And I didn't know if like it was just one of those like, yeah, you can you know come and visit, but really not. But the next day I was like, hey, I thought about it. Sure, I'm going to come and visit. And then he was like, oh, OK, <laughs> when, are you, when do you plan on coming? Because he's like, it's, it could be kind of busy. So I ended up going to, to find the South Dakota to go visit. Craig and um, he set up these interviews at University of South Dakota with uh, some of his colleagues. And, you know, so I was like, this is perfect. I mean, I know we at that point, we had we had been talking about doing a podcast, but we had never like, didn't really commit at that point. But I was like, this could be a good opportunity at least record some interviews. And if we ever have the podcast, then we could we could post these. And you know, we've had them, but it was just trying to figure out what would be the best episode to put it in. And it was like, well, maybe we could put this in a March episode. And then, of course, just with everything that happened, we had to rearrange life. Um, and so just like how David Smith was uh, very understanding of the situation, which we had to move his interview, uh, definitely um, everyone from USD, uh, Craig included, were understanding and supportive you know hey whatever you have to do you have to do stay with us we'll be right back cracking the college admissions code just got easier i'm rebecca gordon your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous tune into the admissions game satire edition and uncover my top secrets for sure fire ivy league admission Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with the admissions game wherever you podcast. And 
that I think the when you had done the interviews in December, as you said, we we hadn't committed because our first efforts to record hadn't gone so well due to technology. And but I'm really glad that you were able to, you know, speak to get the opportunity to to visit Craig and to to speak with him and his, his colleagues because I think, um, you know. It, it's really interesting, I suppose, having kind of multiple people from the same institution on and people with different viewpoints, but they're all working for that that same institution. And so it kind of gives you um, a holistic approach and to see really what's going on there. So I'm quite excited about this. And, and really shout out to all of them, because, you know, here I am on vacation visiting and then doing these interviews. They're working. So they were taking time out of their day to to record this. And I hadn't necessarily supplied them with any uh, possible questions I was going to ask. So it was literally just like kind of like a shoot interview where it's just like, hey, do you have time right now? And then we're going to go and interview and then hear like these, you know, questions I'm going to ask and let, let's see how it goes. And none of them were, were nervous about it. It was just like, sure, no problem. Whatever you need, we'll do it. And, you know, it was it was it was awesome for that and um, most of these interviews are like like five minutes because they had appointments and they had their job responsibilities to do so some were scheduled others were just like on the spot hey do you have time to, to interview like i even got to interview two of craig's grad students and then an undergrad student one of the advising centers that was like impromptu and we got to actually put those on episode three of the podcast. So it was definitely a great experience. It was so different than how it is in, in Southern California. I mean, weather-wise, it, it's different. Uh, People-wise, like just here's one thing is there was like no traffic in, in, in South Dakota. I have to leave my house like early in the morning to get to work. And there's always traffic no matter what time it, time it is in the morning. When I leave work, there's traffic. So usually I'm sitting in traffic. Go to South Dakota and like the speed limits, 80 miles an hour on the freeways. There's no, no, there's like a handful of cars and trucks on there. Like it was so nice. The weather was was even, I, I was going to say it was going to be even better. I take it back. It was cold. Like it was in the 40s, which apparently to a lot of people is not cold. But for me being from Southern California, where it's usually mostly 70s on a cold day like 90s 100s on a hot day i was not used to that but anyone i met when they found out i was from southern california the first thing out of their mouth was like oh you came at a good time because apparently the week before it was like snowing and raining with hail and just terrible weather and the week after i guess they're expecting another snowstorm so i literally came at the right time um, where it was sun, but it was still cold to me. Yeah, it sounds, uh, you know, interesting that um, dichotomy between SoCal and South Dakota. And uh, would the lack of traffic, would the lack of traffic, you know, uh, be enough to entice you to uh, to up sticks and, and move there full time? So I was there for maybe like four days, three and a half days. I was telling people when I was meeting them day two, I was like, I could move here as long as the weather stayed consistent like that. But I, with how the weather is over there, like, no, I don't I don't think I could live there. But just, oh, man, 
the traffic, no traffic there, that's that could be a game changer, I tell you. I'll tell you this one story. So so it was like one restaurant we went to and I don't know if you've seen like in comedies, uh, TV show comedies or movies where like someone walks in and jukebox music stops and dishes fall. People stop what they're doing. They turn and they look at the person like that happened for real. We go into this one restaurant and Mm -hmm. I was like, this is out of a movie or something because everyone there stopped and in like unison turned to look at me. It was so awkward but it wasn't like to a point where I felt they were being rude. Um, I think I was just kind of like the odd duck there. But what kind of annoyed me was uh, the server. I was I was I was dressed up and I had a, a bow tie on because I was like, oh, I'll just wear the bow tie to go to USD and do these interviews. So the server <laughs> looks at me and says, like, are you wearing a bow tie? And I was just like nervous. He said yes, and he's like, mm, "That's weird." That, oh, they they don't they they don't get many tourists, I guess. Or apparently, people that wear bow ties. Um, at least that I mean, the only person that said it to me was that server. But any other place I went to, everyone was so welcoming. So it was just that that one place. But I thought it was just it, that was that was odd. And you know, I look back and I was like, "Yeah, that was weird," but it was funny at the same time because. Like it was, everyone just turned and, and stared at me. Well, I'm glad that that was a one-off because everything you said about the your time at the university was really positive. So, oh my gosh, and the campus is so nice. Um, like everything's like spread out. You know, like old school like buildings. Um, what's also cool is their the their mascots the coyotes. So, like at San Bernardino were the coyotes so that that was kind of cool it was funny because i was posting pictures on my instagram and and i didn't i i forgot to tell my boss i was actually going to south dakota um so he had some other people at campus that followed me on instagram and they were and they were telling my boss i was in south dakota and i guess he asked oh cool is he vacationing there and for some reason people thought i was um I was actually going in for an interview and I was going to leave Kelsey San Bernardino to go to South Dakota. <laughs> so one person told him that. And then I had, I guess, another person on campus tells him that I was there for a conference. And I'm like, I don't understand how you how you got that from me posting a picture of me doing a selfie uh, next to the Coyote statue. But OK, of course, like my boss was laughing the whole time when he's telling me this. And I was like, yeah, no, I was there for vacation. I was doing interviews, but not that kind of interview. <laughs> you were the interviewer rather than the interviewee. Right. Uh, but I guess it just shows like, you, you know, whatever you post, people will make their own interpretation of it. Yes, absolutely. And and you have no control over how it is interpreted. But, uh, well, <laughs> I, I, I'm glad that you, that you got to do the these interviews. Uh, even though if the you know if the message got misconstrued back to your home home institution right so, so after all this um this time and effort that that you put in i think it's it's probably time to to let listeners hear uh from from the people uh at usd so who have who have we got first so um i think in honor of 
Craig um, setting all this up for the interviews um, that we would we would play his interview first. Now, this is actually one that we did not do in December. Um, we actually recorded this last month in March. As much as he set up the interviews in December, um, he was too busy to be able to do one because he had a lot of other things he had to take care of. But to honor him for and a thank you to that, well, I think we'll start with with his interview. And so let's go right into it. So uh, Craig M. McGill is a postdoctoral research fellow for the School of Education Research Center at University of South Dakota. He holds master's degrees in music theory from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and academic advising from Kansas State University and a doctorate from Florida International University in adult education and human resource development. And while Craig is currently at USD, in the beginning of fall... Craig will be an assistant professor at Kansas State University, where he will be teaching in the Master's of Science program and the brand new PhD program for leadership in academic advising. So congratulations, my friend. And without further ado, here's our interview with Craig McGill. Craig, welcome to the podcast. Hello, everyone. Happy to be here. Well, we're very pleased that uh, you could take the time to join us. We're uh, being, um, I suppose, very pleased. You're you're somebody that uh, I met through Nakata back at the conference. What it's not well, not not far off a year at this point, and uh, it was obvious even then that you were somebody who was very knowledgeable and i said i gotta get to know this guy he has a whole lot of insight that uh he can offer so very pleased so I successfully you... fooled you <laughs> i don't i don't believe that for a second sir <laughs> i don't believe that at all i think you are you 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 you, down, you downplay your, your knowledge and expertise but we are delighted to have you here on adventures in advising <laughs> happy to be here thank you and this is your second time on the podcast. Yeah, I was listening once and uh, was surprised to hear my voice, not expecting to hear it. <laughs> yeah, so I, so we had interviewed Craig back in Louisville in October last year, and I told him at some point, yeah, we're going to put you on one of the podcast episodes. I thought I had told him which one I was going to be on, and apparently I didn't, so my bad on that. But I was glad that you were happily or surprised that you heard yourself while listening to the podcast. <laughs> Almost drove off the road. <laughs> <laughs> a happy a happy surprise. Those are, those are nice. Well, I don't know if it was happy or not. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but we had a, quite a, a short little interview because we, we were, you know, had time issues in terms of the conference because we all had different things to do. So I was glad that we got the eight to 10 minutes that we had, but we wanted to have you back on because we wanted to talk to you about some other stuff. And one is we wanted to kind of get to know you a little bit more in terms of how did you find yourself in academic advising? Yeah. Um, So I began uh, advising with a very kind of perfunctory understanding of, of, of what it was that occurred in advising. So um, I was just fascinated by the um, what I would describe as kind of a puzzle piece making um, approach to like what what classes could I get to fit more than one major or a minor or what what minor could I add on and you know what would be the course sequence I would take them in um, and it just was very much of a, like a puzzle piece to me at first um, and then I went to go see um, I had two advisors in college. Um, and one of them 
just didn't um, give a darn about advising. And I was kind of a nuisance to her. And I showed up to my appointments uh, more knowledgeable and seeking more knowledge. And she just didn't care to give it to me. Um, and then this was in contrast to a second advisor who was just amazing and really welcoming and um, just cared about my experience and what I was learning. And it was actually her who made me, um, who introduced me to Nakata and helped me to know that this could be a career. And it just like blew my mind, like, wow, I could sit and work with students and get paid for that. And that was just so cool to me. So uh, I kept that in the back of my head. Um, and I, I, after I graduated from college, went right on to get a master's degree in music theory because I was just in love with it. Um, but it never left my brain, uh, this idea uh, that I could be an academic advisor. And so I began to look more into the uh, graduate certificate um, at Kansas State University and I decided uh, to go for it. And it was just sort of the, the classes I was taking through Kansas State that got me really excited about advising and to help me really understand that advising was so much more than my initial puzzle piece uh, kind of perspective of what it was. And um, just kind of fell in love with the material that I was learning. And um, by the time I'd finished the graduate certificate, um, I had gotten a part-time advising job at the University of Nebraska, um, Lincoln, where, which was my alma mater. And uh, I, they had begun to offer a master's degree by this point, and I just sort of just continued on with the master's. And, um, and then after I finished the master's degree, I negotiated for my part-time advising job to become full-time. And uh, I was able just to bring like not only experience of advising, but sort of this this literature and this um, scholarship to advising. Um, and this was in an area of um, sort of the college that people didn't really know that there was this scholarly basis um, for supporting our students in that way. So I got a lot of opportunities just to kind of flex those muscles and um began pretty early on in my advising career to push uh, advising to be more than what it had traditionally been, which was very transactional um, and course registration based. Uh, so that's sort of how it all began. Very good. I think it's very interesting in terms of the guests that we have on the podcast, because we're kind of seeing that some people have found themselves inspired by not having an advisor or having an, an advisor who they just it didn't click with. And so they were inspired to want to do better. Equally, we've had people who were inspired because they had wonderful advisors and they wanted to follow that path. You had a little bit of both, but you also yeah. had, I suppose, your own path that you're following. And that was when I first interacted with you, it was probably kind of, it was in a session and it was around that scholarly aspect. And it was around kind of um, publishing and, and looking to to really look at advising and, and dig a little deeper. 
maybe you could talk a little bit more about your work in in that area and i suppose are, are for for those listeners who mightn't be that familiar with that aspect of advising maybe you could give them uh, some insights sure well we are at a very exciting time in our history um, because Kansas State University, for the first time this summer, is going to begin a cohort for the first PhD program focused in academic advising. So what this means is that we now have an academic discipline um, of study. And I, um, if I could have, would have done my degree, you know, my terminal degree in academic advising. And so I had to sort of create that experience um, um, and and work advising as a discipline and the study of academic advising into my coursework. And I was able to do that and people can do that and people should do that if they're interested. Um, I don't mean to suggest that the one PhD program we have is the only opportunity to do that, but it does signal a milestone in our history um, that we have a dedicated program of study now and we're seeing more of this uh, occur. And uh, so K-State was the first university to have a graduate certificate in 2003 in academic advising, the master's degree in 2008, and now the doctorate. There are a number of universities, um, not just within the U.S., but uh, I know of one in the U.K., and I know of um, at least one in Canada. Um, and I'm sure there are also programs that I don't know of um, where you can get a graduate certificate in academic advising. And so um, there's coursework now. Uh, so ju just not academic advising as a career opportunity or as uh, an occupation or profession. And I'm sure we're going to get into that, too. But um, but also a content area, a field of scholarship and uh I think this is really important to our growth, uh, and I think we're going to continue to see other programs emerge um, throughout uh, at least uh, North America and Europe, um, but probably in other places in the world, too. Um, so one of the, the projects I'm currently working on is kind of looking at what this coursework looks like and kind of thinking about what constitutes if we're going to think about academic advising as an academic discipline, what constitutes that field of knowledge? Um, you know, and, and some of my academic heroes have, have been thinking about this for a long time. You know, Mark Lowenstein, Peter Hagen, um, Janet Schulenberg um, have all done wonderful work to start thinking about this. Um, and it's, it's, it's a really interesting field, right? Because, we come from different academic trainings and just a diversity of different um, thought, you know, um, ways of knowing. And I think that's really unique uh, than, than other academic disciplines where there's, you know, similar training throughout undergrad, graduate and, and doctoral studies. Um, but we have scientists, we have philosophers, we've got musicians, we've got everyone. And uh, that diversity of thought and sort of um, the diversity of training in terms of uh, theoretical and philosophical thinking about what constitutes knowledge uh, just makes it a really interesting uh, area. And, and also a little bit difficult for us to kind of bound uh, within a certain 
um, epistemological tradition, you know, uh, just because there is so much diversity. Um, so anyway, it's, it's, uh, really exciting and, uh, we've got a lot of work to do too. Well, I can hear the excitement in your voice when you talk about it, but does this all connect having like, let's say certificate programs, master's degrees, having a PhD program, having the scholarship, does that all fit into the professionalization of advising that, that you're so interested in? And absolutely. And, and why is this so important, such an important issue or topic to you? Yes. Uh, Anybody who knows anything about my work knows that I'm kind of working on this professionalization piece. And it stemmed from um, Lee Schaefer and Jackie and John's article from 2010, um, where they sort of brought to bear the sociological uh, literature of how occupations become professions. Uh, so they brought this uh, lens to, to, to look at academic advising where it was in 2010. And uh, they, using the work of a sociologist by the name of Walensky, um, sort of argued that advising had developed in an atypical uh, fashion uh, from many different professions, and that um, some of the things that normally follow a scholarly body actually preceded it in this case. And so academic advising, for all its merits, uh, has always sort of lagged in terms of its scholarship. Um, we did get the Nakata Journal in 1981, um, but, uh, you know, for, for many years, that was the only um, scholarly uh, outlet for, for research, and that's not enough to sustain uh, a profession. Uh, and thankfully, there are, are more coming about here. But at any rate, uh, professionalization is a critical thing for us to be thinking about. And it, it is not without controversy. Um, but um, my sort of view is that the pe people who react or respond negatively to, uh, to this kind of uh, discussion maybe uh, aren't looking at the full picture or have all of the nuances of it. And I think it's the reaction is, what do you mean we're not a profession? Uh, and that's, that's really not what this framework is going for. I mean, that's a very early 20th century version of uh, the study of professionalization. Um, you know, early in the 20th century, it was like, do you have these five things? Okay, then you're a profession. If you only have three of these five things, you're not. And that's just, that's not really what this work is doing. Uh, instead, there are frameworks, uh, and there's n very little sociological consensus about um, professionalization, for, for that matter. But really, it's looking at different aspects of a, a profession and thinking about progress made in, in those areas, Right. So it's not so much a matter of if you've got these seven things or if you don't, you're not a profession. It's more, um, okay, these seven things, what about them matters? What about them are relevant to what we're doing? And what about them do we need to continue to drive? Uh, do we need to continue to work towards better? So professionalization matters because 
occupations are able to gain influence and autonomy over their work, the people working in the occupation have a voice in determining what that work looks like um, instead of outsiders determining what that work looks like. Uh, It helps those working in the occupation um, to vie for necessary resources Um, And it improves reputation and sort of public understanding. Um, And if public, if the public understands, um, this can signal that they value the work. Um, I know that there have been many times to this day, even where when I talk about academic advising to people in in the world with whom I interact, uh, their response is, yeah, my advisor was awesome. They they knew exactly what classes I needed and they helped me to graduate. And I was thinking, well, that's good, but did you get anything else out of academic advising? So it seemed, you know, even if there's a positive perspective of academic advising, to me, the, the more interesting provocative question is about the complexity of it. So if they were great because they um, helped you situate your classes and made sure that you got your degree on time, my response is, oh, well, there was so much missing to that picture. So many conversations that could have been had to enrich uh, your college experience. So many missed opportunities. Um, And so I would say in general, if I could summarize my work uh, in a sentence, it's problematizing simplistic understandings of academic advising and really challenging people to think more deeply about the complexity of the work and to take the responsibility, the professional ethical responsibility to, to read the literature, to read um, what's published in the Nakata Journal, the Nakata Review, the Mentor, the Journal of Academic Advising, uh, these important uh, bits of scholarship that we have. I think that is really fascinating. And I I love hearing the energy, the enthusiasm. And for me, that's, I'm very interested in that side of things as well. And I suppose tangentially, the the notion of problematizing, that kind of links in with one of my academic heroes, uh, Elspeth Jones, who writes about problematizing the notion of internationalization and the student experience. So I suppose for listeners, and I think this is probably for listeners who are advisors, but for listeners who maybe aren't advisors or aren't as familiar with the advising world, I'd like to draw back a little bit. You talked about your heroes earlier and maybe like, I I think heroes can be really interesting. What was it about their work that inspired you? Because you can hear the passion in your voice. So what was, talk to us a little bit more maybe around that. Yeah, well, it started with Lee Schaefer. um, And Lee Schaefer um, was just a tremendous man, um, uh, gone far too soon. Um, but just, uh, just, just a kind, gentle heart who pushed me and pushed others to think um, more deeply about um, whatever it is it, we were talking about. And I think maybe because I had come in with such a simplistic understanding of what advising was, the, the, the idea of being able to intellectualize it um, to think uh, 
about uh, it's it in in complex terms. Uh, I think is what excited me. Um, you know, and I, I, I've sort of been scholarly minded since I was a, a kid. My sister teases me about it because she was never very interested in in uh, you know in in going down that that uh, that path so much. But uh, I just thinking of it in more c- complex ways, um, really. And there have been a number of people who have done that, but. Um, maybe it was Lee Schaefer who began it with that article. Um, Marcia Miller has also been instrumental in, in pushing me to think, gently nudging me to uh, think about something differently or to think about it in a different way. Um, so just, I think it's important for the health of the scholarship of the field and the practice of advising to acknowledge that it's okay for us to disagree. Um, I had uh, somebody who was just totally influential in uh, Nakata's history uh, tell me kind of sheepishly that he disagreed with my article and I got really excited and I wanted to talk about, okay, that's great. And I think we need to be able to disagree um, because that creates a healthy dialogue. Um, I think if we are too quick to politely uh, um, uh, agree on something that uh, uh, that has an enormous stake, then then we're giving up too easily. And, uh, you know, I I think that's an area that the field um, I mean, you know, for example, um, is advising about retention or is it not? And there are, you know, very strong opinions on this either way. And, and I think that's good. And I think that's healthy. And I think it's uh, important that we talk about that. Um, but, uh, but it's a conversation that needs to be had. Yeah, and I think that's just great life advice in terms of if someone doesn't agree with you, don't just get mad at them. Let's have a discussion. And that's an opportunity to have a conversation. But also speaking of let's say, having a discussion on some of this, you've written quite a few articles, I would say. And so a couple of them have been on the professionalization of advising. And in one of them, um, I think you kind of looked at what kind of barriers there might be in, in, in academic advising. And one of those was in a sense that there is no actual universal definition of academic advising. Do you feel that it's important that we have a defined like a definition of academic advising is—is is that a problem? Is that an issue? Yeah. Again, this is a, a another issue that people have different opinions on, and that's and that's great. I fall on the side of yes, we need to continue to talk about w- what it is uh, that we're doing. So um, most of my work, Matt, is on professionalization, um, not just those that have the word professionalization in the title. Um, and I think that's important to say because professionalization is an overarching framework and many of the things that um, we need to be studying and advancing in our field tie directly to professionalization. And I think that is going to be something that um, alarms uh, some people <laughs> who, who initially are not very receptive uh, to, to discussing professionalization. Um, but uh, to, to kind of go to your question, um, one of the scholars who uh, whose work I build on is a guy by the name of Cecil Hewell, who in 1980 
put forth a framework of professionalization um, whereby he uh, he took tw- 20 years of studying disparate uh, you know, like various different professions, uh, 17 different professions, studied their history, how they came together. And he came out with a, a framework of um, three areas of characteristics that uh, that relate to professionalization. And they are conceptual performance and collective identity. Uh, so there's 14 characteristics and they're divided, you know, into those three categories. So conceptual actually just has one and it's the most important and it's clarifying defining functions. So according to Huell, in order for a profession to function, there has to be some agreement about its essence and uh, characteristics that define it. And if there are not, then it's really hard to unite and even look at the other 13 characteristics, which fall into um, sort of performance characteristics, uh, those that have to do with a practitioner, the knowledge they must have in order to do the work of the profession. And then the third category of uh, characteristics, which has to do with the collective identity of those working in the profession. So at the heart of this is clarifying the essential, um, the essence and the characteristics that define that profession. And so that's what has driven um, at least a lot of the, the initial work I'm doing on this. Um, another important um, article is uh, Schulenberg and, um, oh, I'm sorry, Janet, I can't remember your partner's name at the moment. Um, but a hugely influential article in 2008, Advising is Advising. Um, and it's important to look at advising and think about advising and discuss advising on its own terms instead of trying to hang it on the hats of other uh, defined fields. Uh, because that uh, Schulenberg and our um, partner argue that just clouds, that muddies the water. And so we have to know what we're doing and why we're doing it in order to unite. And so that's why um, I kind of go back to this issue of retention. Um, I am of the school that thinks that we need to be careful about how closely we tie ourselves to retention. Uh, If we become so defined by retention, then we lose a lot of what I value in advising, which is um, working with students to help them find themselves and to help them discover their academic identities and how they want to live their lives. Uh, to me, that much more closely gets at the, the essence or uh, the defining features of advising than does uh, I'm going to be really skilled and, and make sure I know the curriculum of this major inside and out and be able to get you to the finish line um, with as few hiccups as possible. Uh, that, that, that may not be a bad goal, but to me, that's not at the heart of it. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. 
Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Yeah, I, I, I mean, certainly, as you said, there is enormous debate around this. And at the, well, putting you at the, on the spot, not at the risk of it. In terms of your definition of advising, is there one that you you like yourself? Well, I like the one I'm working on. <laughs> of course. Uh, well, can we can we hear the the Craig M. McGill definition of advising? Then? Sure. Um, and for those uh, listeners who haven't um, read uh, Sharon um, Sharon, I'm sorry, I always butcher your last name. Was not Aiken Wisnowski's group. Um, they published um, the first empirically derived definition that I know of of advising that was published in the Nakata Journal. Oh, about a year ago, um, and they came to it through analytic uh, induction. But um, yes, I would be happy to talk about sort of what I'm working on right now, and. It um, certainly it comes from a certain perspective and um, it's it's something that I'm going to be offering as something that's up for uh, debate and discussion. And I hope uh, people do argue, you know, and uh, kind of bring their own uh, lens to it. But um, my dissertation study was of 17 Nakata leaders and uh, they're the questions were on a number of areas uh, of professionalization, as you can imagine. But one of them was getting at the essence and the distinctive features of academic advising. And so I coupled the analysis of my interviews with them with an analysis of one of the Nakata listservs uh, that was relevant to this particular topic. And so what I'm proposing is uh, grounded theory is a qualitative methodology uh, that is concerned with articulating um, the uh, aspects of a process. And so the, the focus of that particular methodology is on process. And so I'm thinking about advising as a process. And so uh, I'm working on articulating what occurs in, in the advising process. So what I am currently working with is, uh, and it's, I wish I had a way of showing <laughs> the, the listeners, uh, the, the model, um, as it, it uh, exists in its current form. But through academic advising, um, a student connects with an advisor. And this connection constitutes, uh, the first of four sort of reiterative, uh, recurring steps. Um, and so this is a connecting phase. And once rapport has been established with the advisor, uh, they can work on um, synthesizing and growing. And so the student uh, learns and develops through academic advising, and the student makes meaning of their experiences uh, through academic advising, through the synthesis of this with the advisor. And as a consequence of this discussion, of the, I should say, these discussions, uh, the student will make decisions and the students either occur within the advising context or uh, potentially as the result of the academic advising context. 
And this will lead the student to more opportunities and um, uh, experiences. And uh, through all of this, if this is done in a very intentional, serious way, they will begin to develop an academic identity. And so for, for me, this is the ideal, this is the ideal outcome of the academic advising process that the student will go through all of these steps uh, uh, and continue to develop it. And I want to be very careful about how I say this because I don't mean to suggest that it's only academic advising, number one, and number two, that is a strictly linear process. It involves, you know, people outside of the advising context, certainly uh, in the student's life, um, in the student's academic life, in the life of the institution. But for me, that is the heart of what we're trying to do in academic advising is to help the student to achieve um, not just success, but to think about how they want to live their life um, and to, to bring them to a, a, a deep appreciation of knowledge. Yeah, I like what you just said there about the deep appreciation of knowledge, because I think that's something that a lot of students should hopefully strive for. And even us as advisors or just staff or just humans in general, it's always trying to move forward and, and do better. But I know that time-wise, you have some other stuff going on today and you had to squeeze this interview in. So I don't want to cut it short. I want to be able to invite you back for a future interview to discuss this more. But I wanted to just say uh, thanks for not only being on the podcast, but um, me personally, uh, there's two things I want to thank you for. And one is helping me out when I was taking the scholarly research e-tutorial through Nakata. Yeah. That was something tough for me uh, because I didn't see myself as someone that could go into something like that. And so... And I was always bugging you, asking for advice. And so you're very uh, helpful with that. But then also on a personal note as well uh, with this podcast is um, after we had aired the the second podcast, uh, something had happened that made me kind of rethink or made me doubt myself if I wanted to move forward in doing this podcast and if it was the right thing to do, if I was the right person to be part of this, if it was even sustainable. And so um, you were also someone that I reached out to to kind of get some advice from and um, I appreciate that. And I figured I might as well continue being on this podcast with Colin. So uh, thank you as well for that. Absolutely. We we really appreciate it. I think it has been a fascinating discussion. I I think it'll be interesting for, for listeners, those who are maybe new to the topic or, you know, as you said, if if the hope is to provoke debate and discussion, then maybe that's what will come out of it. And bring it. We, we'll have somebody <laughs> with maybe we'll we'll have hopefully you back on with maybe somebody with a dissenting view in the future who 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 knows where, where this where this may lead but we would certainly love to have you back i think it's fascinating you mentioned identity there that's one of my big interests so maybe that's something we could look delve into further in a future episode craig mcgill thank you so much for making the time to speak to us today we truly appreciate it thank you have a good day Every time I chat to Craig McGill, I think I learn something new. The guy is a wealth of knowledge and information. He is he he is wonderfully self-deprecating, but he is 
so unbelievably smart and I'm just glad that we had the opportunity to chat to him and for him to have the opportunity to to share um you know his knowledge his ideas his thoughts with our listeners oh indeed like super smart super smart and uh thanks again for being part of this interview and Thanks again for letting me interview your two grad students, uh, Annalise and Abby, and um, also one of the undergrad students in one of the advising centers, Jill, at USD. But also, and you can check out those interviews in episode three of our podcast, little plug there. But we also have more interviews, and these are actually more that we did in December at USD. And so the first one is actually with uh, Sherry Bussey. Sherry is an academic advisor and senior lecturer in the School of Education at the University of South Dakota. Sherry earned her doctoral degree in curriculum and instruction in 2006 and has been an academic advisor and an ACADA member for the past 15 years. Currently, she is utilizing Zoom, email, and text to stay in touch with students, but is really looking forward to returning to campus and being an in-person advising again in the future. So, here we go. May you have auspiciousness and causes of success. May you have the confidence to always do your best. May you take no effort in your being generous. Sharing what you can, nothing more, nothing less. Hey, it's Matt Markin, and I'm here at the University of South Dakota, and I get to interview Sherry Bussey. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Fantastic. So we're asking a lot of those in academic advising some questions here um, at this university, and we want to ask you a few if we can. So one of them is you're considered a title-wise senior lecturer. What does that mean? Well, it's a a faculty position where I I am teaching undergraduate and graduate level courses, or I teach some, but the primary primary role for me is academic advising within the School of Education. Uh, Other duties include a certification officer, so signing off for all of our professional programs when they seek licensure, and just other duties as assigned. So lots of titles, lots of roles. Oh, yeah, and definitely that other duties assigned can be anything and everything. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I also heard that... um, for Nakata, you were a previous uh, region conference chair. Yeah. Um, can you talk more about your experience as a region conference chair? And also, a lot of times we get questions in terms of how do I become more involved? Yes. Okay. Well, I started out in Nakata, um, you know, just attending a conference, uh, then moved to presenting at a conference. Uh, at one of those conferences, I was uh, recruited to be a region rep. And from being a region rep, then I took on the role of being a conference chair. It was so much fun that I did it a second time. So I've done a conference chair for two region six conferences now. So it's, you know, it's fun. It's like planning a party for, you know, 300 of your favorite people, which Nakata people are always your favorite people. Um, It's a good way to... um, you know, kind of structure an experience for other people, bring things that you have loved at other conferences to the conference that you're hosting. Um, This last time I did it, I did it with a co-chair. So I got to do it with a friend, which was even more fun because you get to spend that time with them and and bounce ideas off each other. And it's just been a good experience. I, I love Nakata and I love all the people that I have met through Nakata because they're people you might not have connected with otherwise, but you all share that advising experience and that love of advising. So it's it's fun. And I think it kind of also ties into um, Nakata being the family as well. Yes. Yeah. And so being here at, at University of South Dakota, what, what, what brought you here? Okay. 
Well, I came um, as an undergrad years ago, and then I returned about 15 years ago as I started my doctoral program here in the School of Education. Um, started out with a grad assistant role, and there happened to be about halfway through that year an opening for uh, academic advisor faculty line. And I applied for that role, and I didn't realize that I would love academic advising. Uh, but soon found that that was as just as much fun as teaching. So I, if I had to choose now, I don't think I could choose between the two because I like them equally. And speaking of teaching, um, I also understand that you are teaching a uh, first-year experience type course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I've taught a first-year experience course for education majors at least one section a semester probably for about 12 years now. So um, over time, it's kind of evolved. Uh, one of the things that I like to do is get students into a classroom for a field experience their very first semester, connect them with that teaching uh, profession. Um, but I also try to connect them with a lot of other great things about USD, study abroad experiences, um, internship, volunteer experiences, um, engagement activities. Um, reflections, um, and then also focus on some of those things that all students need coming to a college, such as study skills, time management, uh, just kind of um, making some of the the unwritten rules apparent because it's a new experience for students. So we try to put as much of those helpful things into that first year as possible because that's when it really is going to make an impact and they can carry it through the following semesters. Oh, yeah, and, and even every term after that and to, to graduation. Yes. But I really appreciate you taking the time for this. And, and I know we were talking uh, prior to uh, recording this that we were both at the uh, Nakata International Conference in Belgium. And now that we've got to officially meet, um, I look forward to seeing you at the other conferences and getting the, getting the chat with you. So thank you so much. Yes, I can't wait. Thank you so much. May you know the meaning of the word happiness. May you always lead from the beating in your chest. May you be treated like an esteemed guest. Really good to hear from Sherry there. And interesting that she too was at the Nakata International Conference in Belgium. Did you, did you have to meet Sherry? I... I didn't, but uh, as she mentioned there to to you uh, in the interview, hopefully at a, a future conference, when conferences uh, get back up and running again, I look forward to meeting her in person. Yeah, it'll be great. I mean, she she's wonderful. She's so sweet, so knowledgeable. So wish I had more time with all these interviews. But again, like they they had work to do. But um, thank you again, Sherry, for, for taking the time out of your day for that. But now our next interview is actually with an academic advisor, Brandon Hofert. So Brandon joined the University of South Dakota Center for Student and Professional Services, specializing in advising students in the kinesiology and sport management program. Prior to starting his career in academic advising, Brandon taught fifth grade and middle school science and engineering in Kansas and Oregon. Brandon earned a, a degree in elementary education from USD in 2011 and his master's in education administration from Fort Hayes State University in 2015 and also a graduate certificate in academic advising from Kansas State University in 2019, and is currently pursuing his EDD in curriculum and instruction from University of South Dakota. So here we go. When you fall, so here's my message to you. Oh, oh, hello world. I get the honor of interviewing Brandon Hofert. How you doing? Good. So let me ask you this. Um, how did you find yourself in academic advising? Because I know you've been a student here, uh, 
also did some teaching, and then been here now for, for nine months as an advisor. Tell me about that story. Right. Um, so it, it definitely wasn't a direct path into academic advising, um, like I feel like is pretty consistent with a lot of advisors. Um, I went to school here um, as an undergraduate. I was an elementary education major. Um, I was a work-study student, actually, in this office that I'm working in now, um, helping academic advisors with um, some of the data entry and sending out uh, portfolios to graduates. Um, and I kind of fell in love with what the academic advisors in the office were doing. Um, so I graduated. I went on to teach fifth grade for four years, um, earned my master's in um, education administration, um, moved to Portland, Oregon with my wife, who had a, a job as a veterinarian there, um, taught middle school and at the time started taking classes from um, Kansas State University uh, in academic advising um, in hopes of earning a graduate certificate in advising. Um, my wife got a job opportunity back in South Dakota. Um, I was about halfway through the graduate certificate program at the time. Um, there was a position in this office that was open. Um, so I applied for it. Um, I took the position or was offered the position um, uh, and have been really happy since since getting here. Yeah. Awesome. And uh, you mentioned Portland. Um, so I visited her once, um, loved it. Uh, weather is just not consistent. Um, oh, no, weather is very consistent. So it's <laughs> it's sunny and nice in the summer and then pretty much the rest of the year it's cloudy and rainy. <laughs> well, I know when I was there, it was sunny for like five minutes and then it would be raining and then back to sunny and then clouds and it seemed like it could make up its mind. One thing that I heard was you also did the certificate program at K-State in academic advising. Can you talk to me more about like what that program was and how you how you liked it? Sure. Um, so when I was living in Oregon, although I, I did love teaching, I loved teaching elementary and middle school, um, working in higher education was something I started thinking about that I wanted to move towards. Um, I came across the, uh, Nakata program at K-State just by doing a Google search for certificates or certification in academic advising. Um, but the certificate program is five, uh, three credit grad courses, um, specific to ap academic advising, um, going over student development theories, um, diversity in academic advising. Oh, let's see. Um, career advising, uh, foundations of advising. And I was doing really good at remembering all of the coursework uh, and uh, learning theories of students, um, the psychology background. Um, and they were really beneficial. In fact, my, the class I was taking when I first started this position was the foundations of academic advising course. So that gave me some good insight into like what I should actually be doing when I went into my office on the first day, as far as what I should be looking for policy wise, what types of questions I should be asking some of the students that come in for my, my first appointments. Um, so it was, it was very beneficial in helping me get started as an advisor. Nice. And as a new advisor, um, do you have any advice for anyone that's starting out as an, as an advisor that, that you can give them from maybe your experience? Yeah. Um, one piece of advice would be to become a member of Nakata because there's a lot of good professional development resources available, um, webinars, articles. Um, there's books that are published through Nakata as well that are really helpful. Um, I feel like a lot of new advisors come in thinking that the majority of the job is going to be just saying, here's what classes you need to take next semester. And there's so much more than that. Um, students come in with a lot of diverse perspectives and um, situations that you can help work them uh, work with them through. 
and uh, having the background knowledge to be able to give them that advice and help in their development is definitely beneficial and will make you a much better advisor. And, and you were talking about um, a lot of folks thinking that starting out that it is like kind of that course scheduling piece. And, and we were talking before we, we started recording for this interview that that was kind of me as well, that, that I found, found myself in that boat, having that mentality. But um, a lot of the Kata resources, especially the, the, the texts and the DVDs and the, the, a lot of the, the journals, articles that, that are published, was what helped me learn um, to be a better advisor and know that it's not just the course scheduling piece. But uh, Brandon, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much. So hello world. So that was uh, lovely that you had the opportunity to, to talk to Brandon. It's always good to hear from another advisor's perspective. Yeah, and I, I was glad that he was able to take advantage of uh, doing the graduate certificate at Kansas State. I mean, that had been something I think like I had been looking at potentially doing at some point. Um, and I know one of my former colleagues at CSUSB, um, they were they were working on that graduate certificate as well. So, I mean, it's definitely something that's very beneficial. Just another great person that's there. He was probably an impromptu interview. Um, like literally, I just got introduced to him. And then the first question was like, oh, hey, by the way, do you want to do an interview? And he was like, yeah, of course. Like not even like what the interview was about. He just like was like, sure, no problem. Like, let's do it. And so, yeah, again, just a you know, great experience at, at USD that I had. And, you know, shout out to Brandon as well. Next up, we have April Lee, who is a cisgender female and uses pronouns she, her, and hers. As a recruiter for USD School of Education, April strives to make every campus visitor feel welcome, answering all of their questions and helping them to envision USD as their new home. With a culturally responsive approach, her team collaborates on strategies to remove barriers and provide access for all students who want to pursue higher education. No matter where she goes or what group she represents, April is always a cheerleader advocating and using her voice to speak out against inequity and systematic injustices. If it isn't fun, April makes it fun, plain and simple. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. So let me ask you this. So um, I understand you're sort of a recent graduate here at USD and then now for almost a year working in admissions. Can you t- tell me about that story? Sure can. As a matter of fact, um, I came back to school specifically to get a bachelor's degree so that I could work in student services at the University of South Dakota. Moved back to Vermilion about 12 years ago and specifically wanted to work at USD, um, interview, I really wouldn't say interviewed, but I applied for a few jobs and talked to a few people and they kept telling me, well, you'd be great for this job, but you really need to have a bachelor's degree. It's a requirement. So I buckled down and got my bachelor's degree. And a week after graduation, I was hired by the School of Education as the recruiter. So that's how that came about. (laughs) Wonderful. And um, now being here uh, almost a year uh, in admissions, what do you do in admissions? What, what would be your role? Because I, I would feel, because I used to work in admissions, and I know uh, peak season is every day. Uh, there never seems to be a, a downtime, and you might wear many hats as well. Yes. 
So the main thing that I do is meet with campus visitors when they come to campus, but I do also travel around to some uh, local area college fairs. Um, I visit high schools with our other USD admissions counselors and help to support them as well. But really what my role is, is welcoming students and families to campus, explaining to them exactly why they would want to choose the University of South Dakota, more specifically what the School of Education has to offer students that are interested in education or kinesiology and sport management. I also host, organize, facilitate everything plan, <laughs> all of the um, events, any kind of recruitment events that we have here on campus. So sometimes I partner with USD admissions proper um, if it's a bigger event, but the School of Education does have a couple of programs also uh, that we have big group events and we have those students to campus and I'm the one responsible for that. <laughs> and I'm sure you do a f phenomenal job w with it all. I try. <laughs> <laughs> and I know it's a, it's super busy, um, and you know, with the time management and everything like that as well. Um, but it's, you know, it takes a special person to be able to handle all of it, and you seem like you're that person. So uh, one of the questions too, because it's the School of Education. So whether it's a, a student that might be interested, or maybe you know, a department on campus that may not know much about the School of Education, what does the School of Education can offer students? Well, first of all, we have both um, teacher education and for the undergrad anyway, and that's really what I'm responsible for. I should clarify that as the undergraduate recruiting. Um, and then we also have kinesiology and sport management, which encompasses exercise science and sport management. So what we have to offer students really in both of our programs is um, field experience, flexibility, and in-house advising. So uh, the field experiences, first of all, with teacher education, we pioneered the year-long residency. So our student teachers get a full year's worth of experience before they graduate. And it's a special kind of experience. It's a co-teaching model. So the students are really emerged in it and um, only come back to campus one day a month uh, to, to catch up. And um, otherwise, they're showing up every day like it's really their job. Uh, the other thing is that with our kinesiology and sport management program, the last semester, students do a 480-hour contact, hands-on um, internship which is is huge because, um, again, then they have an entire, it's like they worked a full-time job for that last semester, and they have um, experience in exactly the area or the type of job that they want to be in, which either makes them highly marketable for employment, or specifically if they want to go into um, physical therapy or occupational therapy, then they have plenty of experience to get accepted into those graduate programs. So, Yeah, and that's great with the, the hands-on experience, because it's not just I go to the class and I just get lectured to and I just, you know, have the book smarts. It's right. I'm actually having the hands-on experience to learn it and I have I know if this is what I really want to do. Right. But um, I know that uh, this is a busy time as well with it being admissions. Um, so I definitely appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was really interesting to hear April talk about recruitment and admissions and to hear about that from an American perspective. Obviously, that's an area I'm a lot more heavily involved with right now. And also to hear, I suppose, about her experiences being um, an adult student and kind of 
then moving into the recruitment role and certainly it's it's always hectic when you're on the re- recruitment and admissions side of the house so I'm glad that she was able to take a moment to have a quick chat with you there Matt. Oh yeah and if you ever meet her and she's she's like a ball of energy so positive and like I feel like I could talk to her for days just about life awesome person and so we got two more interviews to go. Uh, this next one's with Brittany Schultz. So Brittany is an at-risk advisor in the Academic and Career Planning Center at University of South Dakota. Brittany earned her bachelor's degree in psychology with a minor in mathematics and her master's degree in clinical mental health. Brittany had such a positive experience working with her academic advisor that she wanted to pursue something advisor-related in the field. So let's go into her interview now. Brittany Schultz, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Can you describe what your role here is at USD? Um, At USD, I'm considered a professional academic advisor. And so to me, what that means is that I'm kind of a teacher, a coach, kind of a life coach at times, you know, for students who are struggling. Um, My official title is at-risk advisor, um, though I don't specifically meet with just only students who are at risk in some capacity. Um, so it's really helping them expand their horizons, challenging them when they need to, um, and then also getting involved. So we like to do some more outreach um, and help with a student organization and run that. Um, I like the leadership piece of that, so I do that part. Um, I've kind of dipped my toes in helping student veterans. So my role gets to be a lot of things, which is really neat, and we have the flexibility to do that here. So. And then sometimes like the, our title doesn't really sum up everything that, that we do. And so it's, it's nice that you're able to explain all the, the students that you do help. And speaking of helping, um, the office that you work in, um, how does overall, does, does your office help the students here at UC, USD? Uh, we specialize in the first 45 credits. However, we stu- see students across the whole spectrum. Um, I have students who I've developed a really good relationship with, a working relationship, and um, they come back when it's time to almost graduate. And they're like, I know I haven't been here for a couple years, but can you just help me double check this? Um, And so really, we're kind of the the hub for any odd question that they don't know who to go to. We're kind of their main person. And sometimes we have to refer out, but we're kind of their support system. We're known across campus as if you go there, they'll figure out some way to help you. Uh, And so our, our role is just to kind of support our students and really help them understand the general education and the different uh, routes that you can do with that. And then we do have career planning with that. Um, I don't do as much with the career planning, but I'm working on expanding that into my individual advising and helping them think about that a little bit more because they're here to earn a degree and work. So as I say, you said like your office is, is, is a hub. So it, potentially almost any student could be referred or walk through your office or, or be in there for any type of reason. And so you're able to to help so many students, and, and that's a wonderful thing. How long have you been in advising, and, and what got you involved in academic advising? Well, I have been here um, for six, almost six and a half years, and um, I, as an undergrad, psychology and math minor, which seems a little odd, but it was for a reason. And then um, I went into graduate school for clinical mental health, and um, it seemed really intense. I wasn't really, um, the diagnosing part kind of scared me a little bit. I wanted to make sure that I was serving 
the people I worked with well. Um, in the school that I went to, academic affairs or higher ed was kind of grouped with that. At that time, most of the people that did that were residence hall directors. That's usually the route that they went. But I was kind of unique. I wanted to do more of the advising. I was in uh, student support services or TRIO at my um, college. And I really loved working with my academic advisor. She left a really positive imprint on me. And so I wanted to do something like that. Um, I was an athlete, so I thought about you know going more into athletics and advising. Um, I thought about student activities, more that route. I thought about you know a little bit of the residence hall advising, our resident hall um, director. But then I found myself in advising, and I really really like it. Uh, it's an opportunity to make an impact on students and to help them develop. So I, it's awesome. Uh, I, I love the answer that, that you gave with that. And even like career path wise, it wasn't necessarily like a direct path. You kind of found yourself in it, yeah. you know, based off a lot of your experiences and um, psychology and math, I think it can go hand in hand. <laughs> I was actually a psychology major, but pre prior to that, I was a, a math major and then switched. So wow, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So we'll talk later about that. But thank you so much. Matt, it was really lovely to hear that Brittany, you know, had such a positive experience of advising that she was inspired to become an advisor herself. And I just think that was really impactful. Anyone involved with the profession, I think when you hear somebody wants to get involved because of the positive experience they have, you know, it fills you with just a, a warm glow. I think that we have, you know, that impact on students. Absolutely. And I think her story is very, very similar to a lot of ours. Like we never had a direct path. I mean, some people might have, but I think the majority of us did not have a direct path to where we're at now. And with her, you know, just it kind of shows like how important academic advisors are and how much of an impact and influence we can be on our students and how they're looking to us for that guidance and, and that assistance. And, you know, it, it's, you know, kind of leads me to my, my experience with, with my EOP counselor at Carolyn Stevens. And so it's, it's, it's nice that she had that story and she was able to express it. And we got able to record that to be able to have on this podcast because it's very inspiring um, and it just shows that how much of a difference a person can make on somebody. And so going into our last interview, this one's with Jill Paulson. Jill is an academic advisor at USD. Jill has worked in a variety of roles within admissions and has also served as the director of a boys and girls club unit. Jill now serves as an advisor to the students in the School of Education at USD. Um, Jill is grateful to the professional development opportunities within Nakata and has been fortunate to attend both the regional and annual conferences, as well as help plan the Region 6 conference that was in Sioux Falls. So here we go. So let me ask you this. So as an academic advisor, how do you support students? Well, my role is here in the School of Education, so I'm lucky that I kind of get to focus my advising on a particular major area. So I work with uh, students who are pursuing a degree in teaching, and I work primarily with them in their first, second, sometimes a little bit into their third year as I'm helping them get ready for taking the entrance exams like the Praxis and uh, getting ready to be admitted to the teacher education program. So making sure that they're 
they're on track with their general education courses that they need to be taking and uh, the key education courses they need to complete before admission. So that's kind of my focus. Um, I have a lot of interest in helping them improve their practice results um, because that's an important piece of the puzzle for education students. So um, I'm always kind of looking for new resources to help them prepare for that, especially if maybe they feel like they might be weak in a certain area or something of that nature. So just trying to help support them so that they can be successful both in their coursework, but also in the things that they need to be doing to be admitted to teacher ed. Yeah, so it seems like a, a lot of steps, so a lot of guidance that you need to give them like all the way throughout. Right. Um, so how long have you been in academic advising and what brought you to, to USD? Yeah, it was a little bit of a winding road for me. Um, I've actually only been here about a year and a half, but um, this is not my first rodeo in higher ed. I spent, I actually got my degree from USD as an English ed teacher. So this is kind of home. And um, I taught for a year right out of college and then life circumstances happened. I moved, ended up not finding a teaching position. So ended up in higher ed at a small private uh, liberal arts college in admissions for 16 years, um, worked my way from essentially the secretary to the director of admissions. So had a, a long journey there, um, kind of had a bit of a midlife crisis maybe and wanted to try something new. So I uh, spent a couple years with a boys and girls club unit as their director, um, but just wasn't still wasn't quite feeling like that was quite fulfilling uh, what I was looking for and missed higher ed. So the position came available here at USD and it was in a way kind of coming home. And I, I love advising. I feel like I've kind of found my niche. Um, I really love working one-on-one -on -one with the students and helping them pursue their goals and um, hopefully helping them be successful. Yeah, definitely nice answer there. And, and I like that you talk about home. Because uh, I think for a lot of lot of people in advising, even for myself, like I would consider academic advising in the institution I'm at as as my home. Um, so I also understand that you're also a Nakata member. Um, do you feel that Nakata has helped you in any way with with academic advising? Yeah, um, I definitely do. I think as an advisor, and I think this is a, a challenge for most advisors. We have a heavy caseload. Um, so as much as I love seeing students uh, on a daily basis consistently, it, it can be sometimes hard to collaborate with colleagues. And I think Nakata has been a wonderful way to do more of that and just grow in my own knowledge and experience through some of the other colleagues that I've been able to connect with in, with Nakata. Um, I'm blessed that when I started here at USD, I was able to go to the reg the annual conference um, within a few months after starting. So I was very blessed to be able to have that opportunity. And then Dr. Bussey, um, who is one of my colleagues, was um, the chairperson for planning our regional conference this past May. So she got me involved and I was the chair for the conference proposals, which was a fun opportunity. So um, just kind of trying to find new and different ways to, to get involved because I think it is a great way to meet other professionals in the field. And I think Nakata has so many great resources out there in terms of the publications and the articles on the website and just different things that you can use to enhance your own uh, practice. 
And yeah, definitely Karma is a great way to, to network and even just knowing networking with others here, you find yourself involved with the opportunities with Nakata, especially with, with conferences or reading proposals, things like that. But you're talking about caseloads and we are at USD. So I know you have appointments and things you got to get to, but I definitely appreciate it. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. Matt, it was great to hear Jill kind of talk about Nakata there and, you know, the experience that she, she's had. And I know that in our next episode, that is something we're going to be really looking at is celebrating Nakata and Nakata's impact on advising and on advisors. Absolutely. So we've got some really great guests lined up and we're very excited uh, for that information to go out. And so we look forward to talking with you all and hoping you like the next episode. I mean, it'll be episode 10. So to me, this is like a milestone that we've made it to 10 episodes, Colin. Absolutely. I'm 10 in the first five months, Matt. So I think kudos to to you and, and to us on, on that. And look, big thank you uh, to all our interviewees today. I really think they, you know, it, it was, as I said at the beginning, to hear from different perspectives within uh, the same institution was really, really interesting. I think listeners will take a lot from it. And thank you for conducting all those interviews. And you know, for, for listeners, we hope you're enjoying. There are a whole host of episodes. If you're only beginning to listen, um, there's lots of information in the previous episodes from advisors, from people who support advisors, from students. So definitely check out those uh, prior episodes. And if you can think about subscribing or leaving us a review, I am really, really excited about our next episode. I think it's going to be a great one. So looking forward to the next episode. And so we will leave you with our USD um, colleagues. So back in December, also, um, I had them answer a question of how they define academic advising. We made a little video out of it that we posted, but I think the audio would be perfect to use for this podcast to to leave you all with, um, to kind of see, kind of feel their passion of advising and how there's so many different uh, viewpoints of defining academic advising. So let's leave you with that and we will see you next time. I put academic advising in three categories. First being a trainer or a coach and helping students navigating higher education. I often tease students and tell them your academic advisor is really your life coach once you come to campus. The role of the academic advisor is to serve as an advocate to students. Uh, they face so many changes and challenges as they're entering and working through their path as a college student and uh, earning their degree and pursuing that career goal. It's being a resource for students. And so what that means is going to vary with every student that I encounter because they're at different stages in their journey, they have different needs. Um, second as being a supporter. Uh, higher ed is difficult and navigating those things is challenging and so helping them find the resources while also being there just to be a listening ear to, you know, 
air their troubles. So they can come in here with any challenges that they're facing and we'll help them out. Helping students achieve their lifelong goals uh, through higher education. And then maybe challenge them a little bit if they are at a place where they're ready for a new challenge. And then the third thing I see that as is being a cheerleader. Um, college is hard, you know, things are good and not good but we really encourage them to go to the finish line, finish their degree, and move on from there, whether it's more education or finding that career that fits their specific interests. Give them different ideas of things that they can do to enhance their degrees or their future careers, um, and just be an available, approachable resource when they need me. So basically, we're just a really trusted resource, and um, I would say that academic advisors also remove the barriers for students. Um, through helping them navigate uh, university policies and for advocating um, for them throughout their time at the university. I think we're really here to help guide them. So as they potentially have questions or hit roadblocks, uh, they have a person to go to that they feel is supportive and will be understanding and can help them navigate those challenges in the best ways possible. Don't wanna complicate ya, complicate ya, complicate, complicate, complicate.